So, uh, I don't know, about two weeks ago, I was listening to an interview on NPR. I like NPR. I, and some of you might already judge me, like, NPR. And, like, I love NPR. Um, uh, and I was listening to uh, an interview with Ali Raceman, um, who was the Olympic gymnast um, who was part of the final five uh, in 2016's Olympics. And they were interviewing about her story. She had been uh, assaulted, sexually assaulted by the doctor. And you've heard that story. If you haven't, you were living under a rock last year. Um, but but they, they got into her inspirations and how she got into gymnastics. And she started saying, telling a story about this grandmother that apparently helped raise her a little bit, but she spent, whatever the case was, she spent a lot of time there. And one day, um, she ran across a VHS tape. And the VHS tape was of the 96 Olympic team, um, which is where a girl named Car- Carrie Strug. Does anybody old enough to remember Carrie Strug? This was in the Atlanta Olympics who injured her ankle severely, and, um, but then went and did her routine again. Like, if she didn't do it, they would lose. If she did do it, they could win, and she did it. And, and Allie was saying how, how much she was inspired in that moment um, as she was like a four- or five-year-old little girl. Like, this was way, way before her time. She was inspired by those girls, and to the extent that not only did she become a fan of them, not only did she become an admirer of them, she started, it started to change her life as she memorized, she said she memorized their routines and knew every flinch and every little thing that they did. She watched that tape uh, over and over and again. And, and, and something began to take place inside of Allie's heart. This is what she was saying that, that um, began to change her, that began, that went way beyond fandom or mere admiration uh, that, that, that when she would watch this, her heart would start to beat faster and she would start dreaming and she began to believe what that girl did and what that girl did, maybe I could do and, and how they won, maybe I could win. And, and eventually she gave her entire life to that uh, pursuit because she wasn't just a fan and she wasn't just an admirer. She became a follower of these girls. Now, that happened, you remember, I don't know, 8 or 10, 12 years ago, that happened with Michael Phelps. What he won, like, he won like every gold medal ever. And something happened and some young, like, like millions followed him. I remember listening to an interview about, with him where he said the day that he won some gold medals, he mentioned that he was on Facebook in an interview and he got 5 million followers in that one day alone. So there were millions of people who admired him, but there were a few who said, I'm a fan, and I'm going to go beyond a fan. I'm going to be a follower, and I want to do what he does. And now America, American swimming pools are full of Phelps followers. Like, not me. Like, I admire what he accomplished, but it's not going to change my life, clearly. Come on, right? I, I'm, uh, I'm not about to jam myself into some Speedos, praise Jesus, <laughs> and hit the pool. I, I, I'll cheer those guys on when they swim, but that's the extent of it. I am a fan of them, I'm not a follower, and there's a huge difference. That's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about following Jesus. You know, an admirer, an admirer gets impressed. Um, a follower gets devoted. Um, an admirer applauds and cheers from the stand. A follower surrenders his or her life. You know, millions of people admired Martin Luther King Jr., applauded him, cheered him on, especially in hindsight. Some marched with MLK Jr. Not many went to jail with him. Few got their houses bombed like he did. And almost no one died 
like he did. A, a lot of people admired Mother Teresa. Not, not many moved to Calcutta to serve the poor and the diseased and the destitute. But some did. So, so in the Gospel of Matthew, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn there with me. In the Gospel of Matthew, and I forgot my own Bible. Is that bad? So I'm going to have to use my phone. Of course it's bad. You're the pastor, Danny. Shame on you. We find Jesus starts to teach on a hillside. Um, if you want to turn there, it's going to be Matthew uh, six, 5, 6, and 7. We're going to just kind of jump around in there for a little bit. And this large crowd gathers to hear him and his disciples, the followers, his followers, those 12 guys, um, they came up and they gathered around him and, and he began to teach. And he teaches for the, those three chapters, 5, 6, and 7. And at the end of this, this time, the crowd, man, the crowd is very impressed. And they say things like, We've never heard anybody like this guy. He, he teaches with an authority that none of our teachers have. And they're amazed by him, and we call this the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the whole crowd admired Jesus, but while he was teaching, something began to happen in the hearts of, of a few. Something that's happened to some of us that goes way beyond admiration, that their hearts started pounding and their minds started racing and something inside of them said, whoa, this, this is it. This is it. This is what I've been looking forward uh, for, for my whole life, often without knowing it, to be cleansed like he says I can be, to be healed, to be forgiven of all my junk and the, and the damage and the brokenness and, and to have a life that's beyond fear, beyond worry. Like, like to really... To really know God, to, to not be a slave anymore to sexual desires, to not be a slave to money or to be constantly trying to manage what people think of me, trying to get people's approval, to, to join up with a cause that is so much bigger than me, to get my often miserable little kingdom and to integrate it into something good and great and, and eternal. To have, to have confidence beyond death. This, this is what was going on inside of the hearts of a few when Jesus was speaking. And so they said to themselves, I must have Jesus. I must follow him. I'd rather have what this man has and give up everything else in the world than to have everything else in the world and to give up Jesus. Therefore, I will pay any price, and I will do whatever it is that he says to do, and I will follow him wherever it is that he leads, and I will do this because I must have what he has, and I am not just an admirer. I will leave the crowd, and I will follow Jesus. I am a follower of Jesus. Now, Jesus knew that this would happen, and so much of what he did during this Sermon on the Mount was, was aiming at precisely this moment right, that he was trying to help people get clarity around what mattered. And often following Jesus, and I want you to hear this now clearly, often following Jesus will involve the payment of some concrete cost. Salvation is free, but real discipleship costs. And nobody wants to talk about that. For, for instance, in John 3, Nicodemus, a, a ruler, a teacher of the teachers, Jesus calls him. 
comes to Jesus by night. Now, why does he come to him by night? Well, because at this point, he's an admirer. He's a fan of Jesus, and he wants to know more. But he knows that if I come out and see Jesus publicly, the people, the Pharisees and the religious elite are going to say, who are you and what are you, why are you talking to this guy? Because he was the enemy of these people. And so Jesus says, listen, Nicodemus, you, you must be born again. And so after a time, he becomes a follower of Jesus. And we know this because he is one of the people who comes to take Jesus's body down off the cross and prepare it for burial. And he comes out publicly in a very, very costly manner. Sometimes people say yes, and they follow Jesus for real. Sometimes they don't. There's a young man that Jesus talks about called the rich young ruler. He falls to his knees in front of Jesus. He's a fan. He's amazed by him. And he says, Jesus, you're good. And Jesus says, all right, go sell your stuff. Give the money to the poor and follow me. And the Bible says that he went away very sad because he had many things. The cost in this particular instance was too great. All through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is describing what it looks like to follow Jesus. He understands that it could be confusing and that people might miss it. And so towards the end of it in chapter 7, he goes into how you obtain it. And, and, and the whole back end of the Sermon on the Mount is like this funnel pointing towards people making a decision, a concrete decision, not to be a fan, not to be an admirer, but to be a follower. And Jesus would say things like, let me just read it here. This is chapter 7. Can't see it with my glasses. Verse 13, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many people are going to enter the Broadway, he's saying. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only, only a few, only a few will find it. What's the Broadway? It's the way of the crowd. You drift along. You go with the culture. You reserve the right to do life your own way. But what's the narrow way? Well, Jesus says, I'm the narrow way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus is the way. I, I, I am the way. L love Jesus. Surrender to Jesus. Abide in Jesus. Devote yourself to Jesus. Hold nothing back. That's the narrow way. Right. And he's making a decision. He's saying to the crowd, there's the broad way. And there's the narrow way. And not many people are going to choose to follow me down the narrow way. At the end of the sermon, Jesus is painting pictures, stark contrast, broad way, <clears throat> a narrow way, a wide gate, a narrow gate, a, a good tree, a bad tree, true disciples, false disciples, a house built on the sand, a house built on the rock, people who do what Jesus says and people who do not choose to do what Jesus says, which is what the whole house on the rock and the sand is all about. And all of it comes down to this. Will the ones listening, both then and now, will the ones listening be holy, W-H, holy, devoted to Jesus from their heart, or, or will we not? Will we do what Jesus says, or will we not? So I want to talk a little bit more about that sort of admirer category and what it looks like in our day, because truth be told, I think that that category is where most modern Christians, today American Christians, find themselves in, or in another category I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you about in a minute. And I have certainly been known in my own life to drift in this category. If you ask people in the, in the admirer category, do you believe in Jesus? Most would say, absolutely. Of course I do. In my own way, I do. And, and they may go to church regularly, and they may volunteer on a team. But at the end of the day, they want to retain the right to do 
and govern their own lives. It, so that if, if, if getting too close to Jesus would cause them to risk the success at work or to have to change their lifestyle or humbling them to get help with, with their marriage or with a secret addiction or getting serious about immersing themselves into the scriptures and, 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 and getting serious about their relationship with Jesus, then, they, then deep down that they would want to say, they wouldn't say, but they would want to say internally, you know, no, no, I'm not going to do it. Like hands off. This is my life, and I want to maintain a certain distance between myself and Jesus. I want, I, want, I want just enough of Jesus so that I get to go to heaven, and I want just enough of Jesus so I don't have to go to hell. But anything more than that, it's kind of expensive. Now, if the distance between them and Jesus gets too big because they've sinned a bunch or because life has dealt them a bad turn, then they, they may come to church more often. They may throw a larger offering in the bucket to ensure that the gap doesn't become too large. This is the admirer category. But they won't let him get too close either. They remain in the gray space, uncommitted. The only thing that they're committed to is, of course, their own best interests, their way of doing things. Now, in Jesus' day, there was this sort of natural progression um, there was there was this this natural progression of, of kinds of people. There were there were strangers to Jesus, and they would say, "Who is this man that he can do all the things that he do?" And they didn't know him, and they would be drawn to know more about him. And so they would they would be like Zacchaeus. You remember Zacchaeus who runs and climbs a tree, he wants to see who this strange man Jesus is that he's heard about. And then in the next category, there would be. There would be admirers. Like, they, they, they've watched him heal people, and they've watched him you know, raise dead people, and they've seen him have power over the demonic forces of this world, and so they're like, whoa, <laughs> right on. Dude, dude is awesome, y'all. Come on, right? And then there was um, another category where people would become followers of Jesus. They've watched him. They've seen him. They heard him preach. He's not like any of the other preachers we've ever heard. He speaks with one as one with authority, and he has this incredible power. And I will therefore leave my nets behind. I will leave all of it behind. I will leave my family. I will leave my friends, and I will follow Jesus. I will do whatever it takes to follow Jesus. Now, in, in our day, we've created, I would say, a fourth category. That is, somewhere between an admirer and a follower of Jesus. And this is a tough one, but I think that most of Christianity nowadays would fall in this category. And it doesn't matter what denomination they are, what background they come from, there's a lot of people, perhaps even some in this room, who would be called in, in this category right here called the user category. I want... I like some of the scriptures that are in the Bible, but I don't like some of them. I'm going to have a kind of buffet Christianity where I'm going through the buffet and go, yeah, I don't really like broccoli so much. I don't really, ooh, look at that. I like this kind of broccoli because it's covered with cheese. Come on, somebody, you know what I'm saying? Like, like ah, I'm not really a fan of these dried up looking shrimps. But over here are these snow crab legs. These are a beautiful thing because how many know that snow crab legs are going to be served at the marriage supper of the lamb? 
I mean, I know that they're illegal in the Old Testament, but I think the New Testament is going to be the food decision-making part of the heaven. I don't know. I'm making that up as I go along. And what happens, what happens in the, 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 good, the, the user category is that the, the good news, the gospel of Jesus, becomes the sort of minimal entrance requirement for getting into heaven when you die and gaining access to Jesus in heaven. There's this, uh, there's this scene in Monty Python's The Holy Grail. Any Monty Python fans in the house today? We're going very deep tonight, by the way. Um, Towards the end of the film, all of these knights, um, you know, King Arthur and his knights, they're, they're on this quest to get the Holy Grail, and they come to this castle uh, containing the Holy Grail, and all that stands between them and the end of their quest is the Bridge of Death. Does anybody remember this at all, right? And there's this very little troll-looking guy with his big mane there, and, and he's guarding it. And he says something like, three questions you must answer. I don't know how he says it. Before you cross over. <clears throat> I can't. My voice is jacked up, right? <clears throat> and, and, and so the first knight walks up boldly and asks, and, and so he says, what is your name? And he's like, whatever. And he's like, what's your mission? And he's like, the Holy Grail. What's your favorite color? And he's like, um, red. And he walks over and, and he goes into the, into the castle. And the second knight, he's, he's like, oh, okay, that's how it is. I'll go. Come on. What's your quest? And and then what's your, you know, what's your name? And then he's like, and what's the capital of Assyria? And he's like, I don't know. Ah, and he falls off into the, into the abyss of death. And the third guy's shaken up. And he's like, what's your name? And what's your quest? And what's your favorite color? Blue. No, red. Ah, and he falls off into the, the abyss of death. And so finally, Arthur steps up and he says, what's your name? Arthur, king of, you know, Lancelot. Or, well, no, that's the dude. That's another dude. King of the Britons. What, Camelot, thank you. What, what's your quest? And he says, the Holy Grail. And then he says, and what is the wing speed velocity of an unladen swallow? You know? And Arthur says, well, is it an African swallow or a European swallow? swallow? And the bridge keeper says, I don't know. Ah! And he falls off into the bridge of doom. King Arthur walks across. Powerful teachings right now. Some people think that the gospel is like that. Someday you'll die and you'll come to the bridge over the abyss into heaven. And if you get the right answer to the right question, you get to go over. And so everybody wants to know, well, what's the minimal entrance requirement for gaining access into heaven? And the problem is, is that Jesus never says anywhere in the New Testament, now here are the minimal entrance requirements for gaining entrance into heaven. And so people and denominations debate and battle about what the minimal entrance requirements are for getting into heaven. But heaven, by its very nature, isn't the kind of place that you can be fit for if, aiming, if you're aiming for the minimal entrance requirements to get there. That's right? Come on, by its very nature. Look at, look at it. Read it. Right? And too many Christians of all stripes are looking for the easiest, broadest path, broadest path into heaven. And the problem is, is that attitude and, and that mindset keeps people from being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Keeps them from, doing, from actually doing what it is that Jesus said. The gospel is not the announcement of the minimal entrance requirements for heaven. You just follow this step or these two steps and boom, you're good. The gospel is the announcement of Christ's kingdom come to earth. It's about the rule and the reign of Jesus and his followers entering into that rule and reign right here, right now. 
This is why Jesus was teaching to his disciples when they were praying, pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? There's more at stake here to following Jesus than just our salvation. There is difficult kingdom work to be done because when Jesus left here, he gave the great commission, which was tag, you're it. And by the way, you're going to be bright light and you're going to be potent salt. And you're going to be these things because I'm going to empower you with my Holy Spirit, Acts 1 and 8, to go out and be witnesses to change the world. And changing the world, everybody, involves sacrifice. And sometimes it involves pain. And sometimes it involves suffering. Ask Ali Raisman if becoming a gold medalist requires hard work. And nobody wants to talk about that part of what it looks like to follow Jesus. See, that's the thing about Jesus, about salvation. It's easy. You trust Jesus. Not, not you pray a prayer, not you raise your hand, right? Those are good things. We'll employ those every now and then. But really how you know that you're saved is that you are committing your life to following Jesus. Amen. Ooh, I know this isn't going to be my favorite. We're going to lose some people tonight. Really. I, ain't coming back to, I ain't coming back to first Wednesday. I like Sundays better. You stop following the world's way and you put absolute faith and trust in Jesus and you've started the process, right? right. right? Discipleship is hard. Salvation, Jesus did it all, right? It's, it's the becoming more like Jesus that's work. It's doing what Jesus said, becoming more like Jesus, which is the goal. And, and what Jesus is looking for are people who will do what he said we could do. And because we're users of Jesus, we've not yet tapped into what Christ most wants from us, and that is a relationship with him where day by day by day I get up and say, what would you have me do today, Jesus? What would you have me not do anymore, Jesus? How would you have me adjust my life today, Jesus? I'm following you. I want to do what you said you do because I'm willing to pay the price to become the kind of man or the kind of woman that you called me to be. Now, I'm going to give you a scary verse. Scared me all my life. <clears throat> it's found in Matthew's gospel, also part of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7. And, and Jesus is saying, not, not everybody um, who says to me, Lord, Lord, this is verse 21, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And many will say to me on that day, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Pretty big thing, right? And in your name, didn't we drive out demons? I don't know anybody that does that on a regular basis, right? Come on. And didn't we perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Now, the word know here in the Bible is often used to imply intimacy. Like the Bible would say, and the man went into his wife and he knew her which for the adults, you know what I'm saying, knew her, right? <laughs> Intimacy. And Jesus says, listen, you guys did a lot of stuff for me. You guys used my name a whole bunch to do some really cool stuff, and there's power in my name, so it worked. But I didn't know who you were. Away from me, he says, you evildoers. Now, these are people who were using Jesus to do good stuff. Ostensibly, they were doing things for his name and for his fame and in his name. But Jesus says, listen, we never had this thing going on, man. 
You weren't following me. You were using me. He goes on in verse 24. He says, therefore, and we're just kind of going through here. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man. Now, look at this. This is verse 24. Everyone who hears the words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew and and beat against that house. And yet it did not fall because it had on its foundation, it had its foundation on the rock. I've wondered for many years now how people who are Christians can pray to the same God I pray to, read the same Bible I read, worship with the same songs that I sing, but seemingly never have their lives changed. They get saved, they're in kindergarten, and they grow old, and they're in kindergarten. Now, how many of you want your kids to go to kindergarten with an old dude? That dude's got to go. That's weird. Why is that dude still in there? He needs to grow up. But for some reason in modern Christianity, we think it's cool. After 10 years of living for Jesus to still be in kindergarten. And folk, folk will say, man, Danny, I wish we preached deeper messages on Sundays. I'm not getting fed, and this happens at every church in America, by the way. I'm not getting fed at this church. And I want to say to them, let me tell you something. Your Bible is like Caesar's Palace Buffet. You can go to that Bible, and you can feed yourself all day long. But on Sunday mornings, we're about reaching lost people who don't know anything that you know, and so you're going, man, give me some more. Feed me, pastor. Feed me, pastor. Feed me. I'm saying to you, feed yourself. You got a Bible. Okay. I'm, I'm, yeah. That's too, that's too harsh, man. I'm sorry. You're like, Danny's mean tonight. I told you I was just going to wing this as I went along. So, babe, start the car so we can get out of here right after church. See, here's the thing. When Jesus truly changes your heart, he changes your life too. That's a fact. And when Jesus changes your life, he changes your heart as well. Because a lot of folk show up and do all the Jesus stuff, but their hearts are rancid on the inside. And there's a lot of people who have pure hearts when they come to faith in Jesus, but they get all jacked up by other Christians who have rancid hearts. And that purity, that pursuit of Jesus gets jacked up because they see how lifelong believers are living their lives. Because Jesus says to me, Danny, I want your life constantly being refined that where I'm becoming more loving and more patient and more kind and more gracious and more everybody's welcome and more nobody's perfect and more with Jesus anything is possible and and how can folk who claim to be spirit filled exhibit the giftings of the spirit but not the fruit of the spirit because some of the meanest people on this planet are Christians you know that's true right The most judgmental people on this planet are Christians. How are we praying to the same God? 
How are we both saying we're filled with God's spirit when you got some giftings and you can cast out demons and you can speak with new tongues and you can do all this stuff, but you can't be kind to the person who comes through the front door who doesn't look like you or act like you or think like you or vote like you. Whoa, start the car fast. Pull, pull the car up. Pull the car up closer. I got to get done. I got to get done. There, there are, there's a guy named uh, Michael Novak who wrote a book about convictions, and he talks about convictions, right? And, and, and he talks about them in, in three categories. There are, there, are public, there are public convictions, and this is the things that we want, we want people to believe that we believe. Like, this is the mask we wear so that people will go, oh, yeah, they believe that, right? Like, I'll give you, for instance, if your wife, fellas, asks you, does this dress make my hips look big like you would say immediately like uh no like i didn't even know you had hips until just right now yes right these are things that we say for pr purposes this is what our politicians all of them on every side of the aisle this is what they do to convince us to vote for them i'm just going to leave that alone we want our constituents to believe we believe this but we really don't public and then there are there are, there are private convictions. Now, these are things we think we believe, that we think we believe, but when we get pressure in our lives, we're likely to cave in quickly. For instance, Peter says to Jesus when he says, hey, listen, fellas, all of you are going to deny me and run away. And Jesus says, not me, Lord. Like, I would never deny you. I would never leave you. Now, when Peter says this, does he believe that he believes that? Yeah, he's sincere. He thinks, I'm 100% committed to Jesus. Was it true? No, it wasn't. He did leave him, and he did deny him. It's a private conviction. I think I believe it until the situation changes or pressure comes or the popular opinion turns, and then I discover that my conviction changed because I really didn't believe it. Because no conviction is real until it is tested in the public. And then there are, <clears throat> there are core convictions, right? And what the core conviction is, these are our ideas about the way, our, our, our fundamental ideas about the way things are, meaning we don't violate these. These are the pillars of our lives, our pillars of our family. For instance, I believe in gravity, Right? I don't need to challenge it. I know it. Because I'm not going to go up tonight after this building and test it out on that front porch. Can I get a good amen? Like, this is a core conviction that gravity is not fake science. Can I get a witness, somebody? And here's the, tr the truth. So it orchestrates, that core belief orchestrates my behavior, right? So behavior is always a result of your core convictions about the way things are. I behave based on my fund, not what I say I believe, not what I publicly say, not what I privately believe but never has been tested, but, but, but the way things are is how my behavior is going to come out by the way, the pillars of what I say I, I believe. There, there is the stuff um, that I believe, right? There, there's the stuff I think I believe, or rather, there's stuff I say I believe, there's stuff I believe I believe, and there's stuff that I reveal how I believe by how it is that I actually live my life. The thing is, is if our public convictions and our private convictions were core convictions, we would live our lives 
completely different than we do right now. Can I say that again? If our public convictions and our private convictions were core convictions, we would live totally different than we are living right now. Every one of us, myself included. Come to the keyboard real quick if you don't mind. But there are people that want people to believe they believe. They think they believe what they believe, but it never shows up in how they actually live. And Chris, I mean, um, Craig Rochelle would call these folks Christian atheists. I believe in God, but I live as if he doesn't exist. Jesus comes for the first time in human history in the Gospels. And for the first time in human history, there is a man walking around who has absolute congruence between what he says, what he thinks and feels in private, and how he actually lives. Perfect harmony. Never before had this happened. Never since has it happened. He is who he says he is. He does exactly what he says he does because there has never been a man like Jesus. There's never been a man who lived like Jesus. There's never been a man who taught like Jesus taught. There's never been a man who would do what Jesus has done for us. And his invitation is, trust me with your life. And now we live in a time where people think that it's possible to trust Jesus with their eternal destiny, but with nothing else. And that's not possible. And what he wants to do is he wants to come to us who might be in this admirer category or this user category, and he wants to change our core convictions because we will behave always out of our core convictions. See, the Pharisees had all these public and these private and these core convictions that they wanted everybody else to practice, but they forgot the part about love your fellow man. They forgot the part about grace and kindness and mercies. And when the disciples began to follow Jesus, they began to listen to him teach and they began to listen to him preach around the countryside. And they were following Jesus, but they were not yet followers of Jesus. And it wasn't until, John's gospel says, until they saw the water turned into wine that they put their faith in Jesus. And then they had faith, listen to this now, they had faith in Jesus, but something happened to them as they traveled with him, as they listened to him, as they saw this perfect congruence between what he said and what he did, and something began to change in their hearts and lives. And to the extent where Jesus says, who do men say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the son of God. And by the time that the book of Acts rolled around, they had moved from having faith in Jesus to having the faith of Jesus. And all of a sudden, They pray for the sick, and they recover. They pray for blind eyes to open, and they do, because they no longer just have faith in Jesus. Now they have the faith of Jesus. And that's what happens when you leave the crowd and you become a follower of Jesus. I'm not certain how to get all this done, but what you and I need, I think, more as believers, more than anything else, is to figure out how to be real followers of Jesus. How do we go into training to do that? There's training 
and there's trying. And some of you will leave this place going, I got to try harder. And Paul would say, Paul would say to, to Timothy in 2 Timothy, train yourself to be godly. Like for a marathon, I don't get up tomorrow and say, I'm going to try really hard to run that bad boy. I won't get to the parking lot, y'all. But give me six months, two years maybe, to train, and I can do it. Train yourself. Um, last thing, and I'm over my time, and I usually let you go by now, but I'm winging it, so you'll have to give me a little grace. I've told this story before. There was a dude back in the day. His name was Charles Blondine, and he was a funambulist. Funambulist. You know what I'm saying? Funambulist. Um, a tightrope walk, walker. Now you know where I'm at, right? And back in the day, he was well known for going to Niagara Falls and stretching a cord across there and and he would go out onto that wire and he would make omelets out there and, and he, would make, uh, he would take pictures of the crowd out there. He, he would take wheelbarrows out there. And one day he asks the crowd, do you believe I can push this wheelbarrow from this side all the way to the other side? And they're all screaming. There's like 100,000 people who came to see him do this. And, and, and so they're screaming and they're cheering, yeah, you can do it. And then he calls out, who will get in the wheelbarrow? Dead silence. And this man comes out of the crowd, Harry Coldcard, who is his manager, who has seen him do this over and over again. And the crowds applause and, 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 and applause and the crowd are, are admires. But one man puts his faith and trust in him and gets in the wheelbarrow. And this is what I'm talking about. Jesus taught and everybody was amazed. But Jesus didn't come to amaze the crowds. Jesus didn't walk up to the disciples when he first called them and say, hey, admire me. He said, follow me. Leave what you're doing behind. Leave your way of doing things. Trust me. Follow me. And whoever wants to be my disciples must deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to follow me has to come out of the crowd, put their faith and trust in me, and get in the wheelbarrow because we're about to have the ride of our lives. Following Jesus is the greatest adventure anybody could ever what San Antonio needs and what this church needs and what our nation needs and what our country needs and what our neighborhoods need are not cultural Christians who say one thing but do something else. What the world needs is power-packed, spirit-filled, energized, true followers, not perfect, not always going to get it right, but who say, Jesus, I will follow you, whatever you ask you tell me to do, I will follow you. And, and, and if we could even get 20 or 30 or 40 people that are here tonight to say, I want to do that. I want to follow Jesus. We can turn this area over for Jesus. We can drive back the forces of darkness. We can see kingdom come, will be done. We can see miracles. We don't have to just sing about we believe in miracles. We can see them with our own eyes. Now, some of y'all aren't ready for that just yet, but I believe it because I've seen it with my own eyes. I've seen uh, deaf ears unstopped. I've seen blind eyes open. I've seen and I've experienced uh, heart conditions healed in a moment, and I believe we can see that as well. All right, I'm done. I'm over. Lord Jesus, 
maybe this is too much, I don't know. Maybe they're gonna fire me after this is over. But Lord, I, I, I have to think about who I'm following and who I have to give account to later on in life. And I don't really give account to people. Someday I'm gonna stand before you and give account to you for what I said, what I did, what I didn't say. So Lord, tonight we just took a gamble. We just risked it and we just went out and said, Lord, here's what you want us to say. And I'm just praying that something would stir in the hearts of somebody who would say, I want to know what that looks like. I want to follow Jesus. I want to serve Jesus. I want to make life less about me and more about him. I must, like John, John the Baptist said, I must decrease so that I can help him increase. I must make life less about me and more about Jesus. And whatever you say to do, Lord, I want to do it. I'll get out of the boat. I'll walk on water. I'll go where you lead. I'll go where you say, and I'll do what you say to do. Lord, God, if somebody would get that with us tonight, God, if, if that, that would happen in my heart, in my life, we will change the world. I pray these things over everybody in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Hey, listen, stand with me real quick, real quick, real quick. I know I'm waiting.